We are starting a new sermon series today titled A Firm Foundation. We'll be looking at the Word of God as that firm foundation upon which we can build our lives. And uh, I just got to thank our worship team for leading us this morning. They did an exceptional job and uh, what was wonderful. Um, so thank you for, for leading us and uh, bringing us into the presence of God as we kick this off. In this series, A Firm Foundation, we're talking about solid truths for a shifting world, that the, that the world around us feels like it's shifting and not in the right direction, not in the direction that, that God's Word would say is God's vision for our lives and for His people. And so we are looking at the whole of Scripture, particularly this this series will be rooted a little bit more in the Old Testament. We've been preaching through the New Testament uh, as we've been going through this year in our Banding Together reading plan. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but this summer, the summer months, are focused more on the Old Testament. And so we'll be doing that as well, not necessarily following any one track that's available, but rooting these in God's Word, particularly the Old Testament. I want to begin by showing you an image that's had quite an impact on me and always makes an impression when I share it with people. It's a visual representation of over 300,000 cross-references contained in the pages of Scripture. And so the little white bar across the bottom represents all of the chapters of Scripture, and wherever there are links from one chapter of Scripture to another chapter of Scripture, a line is drawn. And there's a, a little bit of a close-up that helps you see this a little more clearly. So starting on the left side, that first little bar would be Genesis chapter 1, and all the links from Genesis chapter 1 into the rest of the Bible come out from there, and shorter distances are marked by light pink, and longer distances are marked by green, and all the different colors have to do with that. And then each one of those lines goes to a place where something from Genesis 1 is referenced in another part of Scripture. And when you zoom back out to the whole thing, you see that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of links, of cross-references, that the Scriptures really are an integrated whole, that they tell the message of God's love from, from the very beginning in the beginning to the very end, and they are cohesive. And it strikes me that if one person could do this and make this their life's work and make a book like this their life's work, writing it with all of these cross-references and all of this integrity and all of this cohesiveness, we would marvel at that and say, wow, that's impressive. But then when you consider that the pages of Scripture were written by dozens of authors over a 1,500-year period at least, maybe longer depending on how you date certain things, you start to say this is nothing short of miraculous, that there would be so much integrity, such cohesiveness in between the covers of your Bible. And it really highlights this reality, that there is a single author. And that this is His story, His revelation to us as humanity. And yes, there were a number of human pens in His hand. Those authors like Moses and the prophets and the gospel writers and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John that penned the words of Scripture, but it was God revealing Himself to us all along. And He's still writing His story. He is still revealing Himself 
to us individually, to us corporately, he is still writing his story. And one of the most powerful things that happens, and as a pastor you get to see it a little bit more maybe than other people sometimes get to see it, but one of the most powerful things that happens is when your story intersects with his story. And a new story is written in your life. And a new story of God's grace and His love and His mercy and His forgiveness comes into your heart and comes into the heart of someone else through your willingness to surrender to that, through your willingness to get on His mission and push that forward. And He's still writing His story. The question is, has your story intersected with His story? Is your story now a part of His story? Has it been woven into the tapestry of His story that He is writing? We talk about the Banding Together journals quite a bit, and uh, this is another time to highlight that. If you don't have one of these, you can fix that today. You can go out into the lobby, and there's a few over on a little wooden stand by the office. You can pick one of these up. There's a $5 suggested donation. Don't let that keep you from picking one of these up. This is a reading plan. It's a journal that you can spend one-on-one time with God on a daily basis, and then you can get into a group of other people that are spending one-on-one time with God and His Word on a daily basis. And you can start learning and growing together and having transparent space to wrestle through these things and to grow as disciples. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a reading plan that goes with this. We've been in the New Testament for the first five months. In the summer, it switches gears a little bit, and there's four different options. So the idea with this, if you do this every year, you read the New Testament every year, and you read the Old Testament every four years. And so you're always in God's Word, you're always understanding it better, seeing new things from it, seeing how it is living and active. And so my encouragement to you is to pick one of these and to be faithful, to be faithful in that reading. I wrote in this, in the digital bulletin this week, that that summer can be a tough time for spiritual disciplines. We get our routines disrupted and it, you know, we're not up as early or we're not up as late or we're doing this or we're going there or we're taking a vacation. And it's really easy to kind of lose track and to get off and then you're way behind. And, and then somewhere in middle July, you think, gosh, I haven't read my Bible in weeks. Well, I'll just pick that back up in September. And you go on vacation from Scripture. And I would say, please don't do that. Pick one of these, be faithful, read it every morning. You may need to adjust the routine. You might need to do it at lunch. You might need to do it later in the day. You might need to move it up into earlier in the day. Uh, but there are all kinds of ways that you can do this. And, and my real hope and my real prayer is that we would leverage summer for spiritual growth, not lose spiritual growth as a result of summer. Leverage summer. Leverage the opportunity, the shift to grow spiritually so that at the end of August you look back and you say, man, I grew more in my faith. I grew more in my relationship with God this summer, this last season than I ever have before. That would be my hope and my prayer. And so today as we start this new sermon series, which will take us deep into the summer, we're going to start with a message titled Centering Our Lives on God's Word. Centering Our Lives on the Word, the Word of God. And if that sounds familiar, if that phrase sounds familiar, that's a good thing. That's one of our core values here at Linwood. We have three of them, and each of them will be part of this series at some point. But today we're looking at centering our lives on the Word, which is first for a reason. It's really foundational, go figure, uh, to everything else that goes upon it. And that 
that illustrates an element of core values in and of themselves. When we, when we felt like God was saying the vision for Linwood Church is to be and increasingly become a family of families, that's the picture of a preferred future that God has for you and for us. That's the vision. The mission is to reach people for Christ, give them a place to belong, and help them grow in their faith. If we do that, if we achieve the mission, it will look like the vision becoming a reality. We'll reach new people for Christ, give them a place to belong, help them grow in their faith, and we will be and increasingly become a family of families. That's the vision and the mission in directional relationship to each other. Mission and vision are directional. Core values are foundational. Core values are the foundation upon which the mission is accomplished and the vision is realized. And so it's important that we understand what those core values are. And at Linwood, we have three of them, centering our lives on the Word, giving, uh, caring for each other, and leaving a legacy of faith. That's what we do. That's how we exist as a body of believers in this world. And that's how the mission is accomplished and the vision is realized. And so we'll look at each of those. We define centering our lives on the Word this way, consistently preaching, teaching, and applying the Word of God to every aspect of our lives, both individually and corporately. We need to break that down for a second because every word was picked with great intention and it means something. And so when we talk about consistently preaching, teaching, and applying the Word of God, consistency really matters. Consistency matters to your life and your relationship with God. It matters to your witness and your ability to, to be a positive witness in this world, to point people to Jesus. If you live like a Christian on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday, it's 100 miles an hour in the other direction, that impacts your witness, doesn't it? And so we want to consistently preach, teach, and apply. We don't want to just visit God's Word for an hour on Sunday. We want to center our lives on God's Word. We want to center our lives on the Word. And then those verbs, preaching, teaching, and applying. Preaching, teaching, and applying are picked as well. Oftentimes when I'm explaining a scripture, I say there's three questions you should ask whenever you're reading God's Word. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply, right? Well, what does it say? That's the proclamation. That's the preaching. We preach God's Word here at Linwood. We preach God's Word. We, this is what God's Word says. We proclaim that. But we don't stop there. We also teach God's Word. We teach what does that mean? What does it mean? What do the words mean? What is the social context? What's the historical context? What does it mean when Jesus says this? What does it mean when Paul writes that? What does it mean when the prophet says this? We teach God's Word, but we don't stop there either. We seek to apply God's Word. We seek to make application, to answer that third question, that critical question, how does that apply? How does that apply to me? How does that apply to my life? How does that apply to my circumstances? How does that apply to my hopes and dreams? And so we preach, teach, and apply. We answer those questions. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? And we do that in every area of our lives. There's no carve-outs. There's no locked closets, so to speak. If we borrow C.S. Lewis's analogy that our lives are sort of like a home and the, the goal, the vision that God has for our lives is that we wouldn't just bring him into the foyer and say, you wait here while I go clean up that back bedroom. No. We say, Jesus, here's the master key. Go anywhere you want. Fix anything you find. 
If there's anything that differs in my life, in my house, from your vision for my life, from your place that you want to abide in my life, fix it. Show me what it is. Show me through your word. Show me through prayer. Show me through fellowship. Show me so that we can make that right. Because as C.S. Lewis says, we think we just are content to live in this ordinary cottage. But Jesus wants to turn that into a mansion because he intends to live in it himself. And so we need to hand over the master key. We need to, to preach, teach, and apply God's word to every area of our lives, not just individually, but corporately, that we're seeking to do this as a body, as a family of families. And so our bottom line today, I'll give it to you now, and then I'll give it to you again later. But the bottom line today is that there is no firmer foundation than the Word of God. There is no firmer foundation than the whole Word of God upon which we can build our lives, upon which we can found our lives. That's the foundation. There's no firmer foundation than the whole Word of God upon which we can build our lives, upon which we can build our families, upon which we can build our churches, upon which we can build our communities and our culture. And this is God's vision. You see it in the pages of the Old Testament that our lives would be completely founded and centered upon Him, upon His Word, upon His ways of doing things. And as we'll see in Scripture, when that happens, things go really well. And when that doesn't, things don't go so well. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We'll look at a couple verses at a time here and work our way through this psalm. If you're in the sanctuary here, you can pick up a Bible and turn to page 843. If you're joining us online, this will be on the screen. It'll also, uh, I would encourage you to pick up a Bible or open up a, uh, a Bible on your phone or something and follow along in the version that you normally use. So the context for Psalm 1, this is the first psalm in the whole book of Psalms, which is the biggest book of the Bible. And it's interesting to me that this first psalm doesn't have an author. It doesn't have, we can't ascribe it to David or to Asaph or to the sons of Korah. It doesn't have an author that is named, but I think that its position as the first of the psalms is significant because it talks about God's Word and it talks about our relationship with God, God's Word and how that really, really matters. And so if we look at Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man who, or the woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's a contrast that's being presented here. And it starts with this phrase, blessed is the man, or blessed is the woman, or some translations might say blessed is the one, just to be gender neutral, but this is for all people. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. There's a way that seems right unto a man. There's a way that culture says, you know, have it your way, right away. What feels good, do it. That's the way that you should go. Well, that's the counsel of the wicked. And so there's a contrast and it's, the statement is made, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight, this is, the, this is the condition upon which the blessed person lives. His delight, her delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law. He meditates day and night. That's the blessed life. That's the life that is truly life, as we talked about last week. This idea of blessing is, 
is to be truly happy, to be truly blessed, to be a recipient of divine favor. And so if that language sounds familiar, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes, and He says, blessed are, and He throws this open, and He doesn't finish those statements the way we expect Him to finish those statements. He doesn't say, blessed are the rich, because they have everything they need. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't say, blessed are the strong, because they can exert their will on the world. He says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And he he sort of turns the world on its head, and he says, what you think is blessed is not blessed in my kingdom. My kingdom determines what is blessed, and it lines up perfectly with Psalm 1. And so he describes this blessed person, this blessed man or this blessed woman. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And it's interesting to consider that, that this language pops up all over the Old Testament. It was kind of hard to pick just one to focus on. And then you see examples of it both before this and after this chronologically and in the pages of Scripture. And one of the earliest commands that had to do with our relationship with God's law comes in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's a prayer that every Israelite, every Hebrew would memorize this prayer. They would say it multiple times a day. It would roll off the tongue immediately. And it was called the Shema because the first words of the prayer in Hebrew make the sound Shema. And so we know that today is is Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them up on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What is the message here? The message is that this word is to be foundational to every aspect of life, whether you're at home or you're on the road, whether you're coming or you're going. Tie them on your wrist. Put them on your forehead. We don't do that so much anymore, but I I bet it would be a great conversation starter if you want to try that out. Put a little scripture up there and see what people say. But the idea was that this isn't something that you do once a week. This isn't something that you do for 15 minutes in the morning. This is something that It's the drumbeat for your life all day long, and you're coming and you're going. You're so enthralled by God's Word that you're talking about it all the time, that you're thinking about it, that you're reflecting upon it, that you're meditating on it all day long. And so we see that for all the people, and then we see it carved out for leadership. The first leader that comes into power comes into leadership or into influence after the law was written down by Moses is the man named Joshua. And you can read all about it in the book of Joshua. And how does Joshua begin? It begins with this this prophetic word from God to Joshua. You know, be strong and courageous, right? You know that part. But don't miss verse 7 and 8 because in verse 7 and 8, God basically tells Joshua, here's how you're going to be strong and here's how you're going to be courageous. He says in verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. He's telling you, be strong and courageous. Here's a promise that goes with that. You make this 
law, this book of the law that Moses has just written down, Genesis through Deuteronomy, you spend your life learning that, building that deep into the fabric of who you are as a person, into the fabric of your nation, it's going to go well with you. You're going to have success. You're going to be prosperous and successful. And this is one of the earliest commands from God to a leader regarding His law. And He says, let it never depart from your mouth. And it highlights and it underscores the importance of God's Word, the importance of divine revelation, the value of that for a leader. God doesn't say, here's how you're going to be strong and courageous and list a bunch of military strategies or list a bunch of administrative to-do lists or anything else that, that you might think would be first. He says, no, spend all your time in the Word. Spend all your time thinking about it, reflecting on it, meditating on it. It reveals who I am to you. It reveals the mind and heart of God to you. It reminds you of the promises. It tells you how you are to act and how you are to live in this world. And wouldn't you know it, when Israel obeys and reveres God's Word, it's really good. And starting in Joshua, we see a cycle of good kings, good leaders, good judges, and bad judges. Joshua's a good one. The book of Joshua is all about military conquest. They honor the law. He begins with this. He ends with that famous passage, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it goes really, really well, and they take the land, and and they follow God, and they enjoy His blessing. And unfortunately, there's more than three verses to Psalm 1. Unfortunately, there are wicked people in this world. Unfortunately, there are those who do not revere God's Word, who do not follow God's Word, who do not hold it in high regard. And the Bible refers to them often as the wicked. So in Psalm 1, verses 4 and 5, we read this, Not so the wicked... They don't experience the blessing. They don't bloom like a tree planted by streams of water. They don't bear fruit in season. Whatever they do doesn't prosper. Instead, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, for, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And as I mentioned before, when the leaders, when the people of Israel disregarded God's law, when they chose not to obey it, when they chose a different foundation than the firm foundation of God's law, it went terribly bad. And they became like the peoples around them, and they, they assimilated with these sinful cultures, and they offered their children as sacrifices, and they sacrificed to pagan gods, and they did all kinds of horrible things. And they abandoned God and, and removed themselves from His blessing and paid the consequences. And eventually, they get so far away from God as this cycle sort of repeats itself over and over again. And there'll be a good king, and he'll lead things back, and there'll be a season of prosperity. And somebody like David takes the throne, and he loves God, and he loves God's Word, and he holds God in high regard, and the kingdom expands, and everything is up and to the right. And then a few generations later, by the time you get to Rehoboam, they're sacrificing to the Baals. They're doing all kinds of horrible things. And they're removing themselves from God's blessing. And that cycle perpetuates itself to the point that they're all carted off to Babylon and to Assyria. And and the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and the nation is in a shambles because they denied God and they removed themselves from His blessing. And so this psalm, Psalm 1 and verse 6, it concludes, it says, it summarizes the whole thing, for the Lord watches over the way 
of the righteous. And you might think, well, that's like an occasional glance, right? To watch over, like I can watch over, you know, by just turning my attention occasionally. No, not at all. It's, it's kind of a, I, won't, I don't want to say a mistranslation, but that word, the Hebrew word yada, has to do with the most intimate knowledge available, like the knowledge of a man with his wife, that deep, deep, intimate knowledge. When that's, that's what God does. He, he is intimately aware of the details of your life. He's not glancing at it occasionally. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. He's all-powerful, and He can see every aspect of your life, and He watches over, and He guides, and He directs, and He instructs, and He does all of these things for the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So as we hit the halfway point in this message, it's really good to pause and ask, do you want God watching over your life, intimately acquainted with every detail of your life, providing guidance and direction and blessing and favor, or do you want your way to perish apart from Him and be separated from Him forever? You might say, well, now, Pastor Mark, that's Old Testament, right? We're New Testament. We're New Covenant. We don't have to pay much attention to that. Why are we even doing a reading plan where we've got to read the Old Testament every four years? And I'm going to tell you why. Because Jesus did. <laughs> we'll see what Jesus had to say about the Old Testament. We'll see what Jesus had to say about the law and the prophets. This is not just an Old Testament promise or an Old Testament co- uh, concept because it was made by a timeless God. It was made as a timeless present promise. And it becomes a foundation for everything that gets built upon it. And so, before we get into what Jesus said, I've got to give you a little bit of a crash course on covenant theology. And I'm going to take about three minutes to explain something that whole books have been written about, big books. In fact, when I went to the seminary library and seminary, and I had to do a little paper on covenant theology, and I thought, oh, I'll go get a book on it. Well, there's several shelves of books on covenant theology, so we're just going to scratch the surface. You're going to get the tip of a very big iceberg today. If this is intriguing to you, you can go much, much deeper. But the idea is that covenants are legal binding contracts, and that when God, a covenant-making God, initiates a covenant like He does with Noah, like He does with Abraham, like He does with the people, He's making a legal binding agreement. He's entering into this, and He doesn't have to do this. He does it as an act of love. He does it as an act of grace. And the covenant comes with requirements, and God always meets His side of the requirement, and we always fail at our side of the requirements. You can read about that over and over and over in Scripture. But God can't just do away with the covenant. He can only improve upon the covenant. He can only enhance the covenant because it's a legal binding agreement. Not that God is handcuffed by this. He's initiated this. He has entered into this willingly. He has said, I'm going to make a covenant with you as an act of love and grace. And even if you fail, I'm not going to just wipe that away. I'm going to make a better one. And that's what he does over and over again. And that's what he does in the person of Jesus. And so what do we as New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, do with the Old Covenant? We do with it what Jesus did. We make it a foundation. We make it a foundation upon which we build our lives, a foundation upon which we enter into a relationship with him. And we don't throw it away, and we don't disregard it, and we don't say, because I can't understand it, I'm off the hook, okay? Deuteronomy 29.29 is a beautiful little verse, and if you haven't ever really studied this or, or spent much time with this, I would encourage you, this is one to memorize. This is one to write 
Put on your bathroom mirror and remind yourself on a regular basis. It says this. This is Moses writing to the people of God. He says, the secret things belong to God, to the Lord our God. There are things that are are beyond our comprehension. We're not going to get them. To reduce them to the point that our finite minds can understand them is to minimize them, to diminish them in some way. And there are some secret things. There are some things that we don't get and we don't understand. That's where faith comes in, that we trust the character and the nature and the mind and heart of God to the point we say, there's parts of this that I can't understand. Those things belong to you, God. But, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of the law. So what has been revealed, what God has made known, that's a gift to us and to our children. There's an inheritance. This is God, the God of the universe, showing us how to prosper, showing us how to be successful, showing us how to be strong and courageous in every season of life and regardless of the storms that come. And so that's kind of the foundational principle. Now we're going to look at what Jesus had to say because I think, you know, if what would Jesus do is a good question, what did Jesus say? is a really good question too. And we can look right at the red letters very early in the New Testament, just a few chapters in. We can see what Jesus had to say about this law. So if you want to fast forward all the way up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, first book in the New Testament. And Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not like Jesus preached this one sermon one time and then he closed the book on that. He preached this sermon everywhere he went. He preached these elements everywhere he went. When we're told in other places in Scripture that Jesus was teaching all day long, this is what he was teaching. And the parables and the other lessons that Jesus gives fit well within this. This is sort of a comprehensive New Testament ethic, New Testament morality. It's it's the proclamation of the kingdom of God and what it looks like and how it's coming into being. And so this is the core or the central message. And very early in this central message, we see Jesus saying this in verse 17 and 18 of Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so he creates a contrast there. He says, don't think for a second. I think, I think that just got left out. Don't think for a second that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. The law is the first five books. The prophets is everything else in the Hebrew understanding of the Old Testament. So the law was Genesis through Deuteronomy. The prophets was Joshua through Malachi. So he's saying, I didn't come to abolish that. I didn't come to do away with that. I didn't come to destroy that or overthrow that. I came to fulfill that. I came to make full every promise, to make full everything that was written, to complete it and to satisfy it. And when he says this, he clarifies God's original gracious intent for the whole thing. And there's a couple of places in Scripture where we see this really, really clearly. If you look at Luke chapter 24, one of my favorite stories in Scripture, uh, you see Jesus on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples and are trying to make sense of the crucifixion. They're trying to make sense. We thought Jesus was the guy. We thought he was the Messiah. And they don't recognize Jesus because nobody was expecting the resurrection, but he comes along with them and he walks with them on the way to Emmaus. And we're told that he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures and how everything pointed to him. Everything points to Jesus. The first messianic prophecy comes in Genesis chapter 3. 
moments after the fall. We're told that one will come and will bring restoration and will stamp upon the serpent and will overthrow sin and death. And Jesus is saying, it's all about me. It all points to me. And I am the fulfillment of that. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to complete it. I came to fulfill it. I came to satisfy it. And so by fulfilling it and by satisfying the law, Jesus makes the blessings available, the benefits of that available to each and every one of us. And then he continues in verse 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And in saying this, he confirms the full authority of the Old Testament, that it all points to him. And you might say, well, gee, Pastor Mark, I've read. I, last year, last summer, I did the option one, and I read about Genesis, and Genesis was pretty cool, and I did all right with Genesis. I did okay with Exodus, and I got to Leviticus, and things got weird. And there's all kinds of ceremonial laws, and there's all kinds of, of sacrificial systems. So, Pastor Mark, why do we have a baptistry over here instead of a big altar with a fire, and we sacrifice a goat and throw it on there every Sunday? What's the deal with that? What, didn't we get rid of that? Well, that was all satisfied by Jesus. Righteousness is a really important thing to understand because in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, you achieved righteousness, you achieved right standing with God by offering a sacrifice for your sins, by offering a goat, by offering a bull, by offering two turtle doves, by offering grain, by offering wine, by offering the produce of the land, and that paid the penalty for your sins. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, Jesus is sacrificed once for all, for all people in all times. And so instead of coming in and offering sacrifices for our sins, we come in and sing the praises of one who is offered as the final sacrifice for our sins. And if you want to learn more about this, I preached a whole sermon series a couple years ago called Better Than Ever. And it was rooted in the book of Hebrews, which really dives deep into this. And it will help clarify this. It will help understand this a little bit more. Um, this message today is already a message that probably should have been a sermon series. So I can't get too deep into that. But you can go listen to that one, and you can read through the book of Hebrews, and you can can understand this stuff better. But basically, the sacrificial system and the ceremonial laws were completely fulfilled by Jesus, and they are no longer necessary for us to obtain righteousness. Now, morality and ethics, which are sort of the other arm of the law, that's still good for us. Like, look around. When people don't kill each other, when they don't commit adultery, when they don't steal from each other, when they don't lie, when they all agree that there's one God, the one true God, that we shouldn't have other gods before Him, that we shouldn't make idols, that we should do the Big Ten to get fleshed out in some of the other morality and ethical teachings of the Old Testament, things go really well. Like, we're all better off. It's not just that I'm better off when I do those things. It's that you're better off when I do those things. And I'm better off when you do those things. And so we learn this, and we see this in Scripture. And Jesus is saying that we still are blessed when we follow the morality and the ethical teachings of Scripture. In fact, Jesus expands them. Jesus amplifies them. That's what the rest of the New Testament is about. That's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about, right? You heard that it was said. The law said, don't kill each other. I say, don't even hate each other. The law said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even look at somebody with adultery in mind. He actually enhanced or magnified or increased, raised the bar 
the point where we absolutely need a Savior. We absolutely need the Holy Spirit living within us to make us holy. And he gave us a new command, a new command for the new covenant. And that's what we're talking about in the last series. Love one another. Love, agape, one another, self-sacrificing surrender for one another. And we're going to need his help. We're going to need his help for that. So there's a couple other New Testament teachings that are on this. There's actually quite a few, a few that I'll highlight today. Uh, Romans 10.4, where Paul picks up this idea that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And he says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law. Not like the finality, you know, of the law, but the goal. Like you've heard the phrase, the ends don't justify the means. The goal of what you're trying to do doesn't, accomplish, or doesn't justify the means of what you're, you're doing. He's saying the end, the goal of the law was righteousness, right? The goal of the law was that we would have right standing with God. God graciously gave that as a gift to the people in the Old Covenant. Jesus satisfies that so that there would be righteousness For everyone who believes, now faith, now belief is the condition upon which we achieve right standing with God. We believe in Jesus and his righteousness comes to us. In Galatians 3, there's another really good word picture that Paul uses. And he says, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Here's another thing that the law was really good at. It pointed us to Jesus. The whole thing points to Jesus. The law shows us our need for a Savior. It introduces us to Jesus through all of the prophecies, and then we see that lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and we're told that the law put, was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we would be justified by faith, so that we would experience righteousness, right, standing with God through faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. I love that phrase because as I reflected on that phrase, I wrote down, we're no longer under the law. We're now standing on the law as a foundation, a firm foundation for the life that God wants for us to have. We're no longer under it. In fact, Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you've created so many laws, you've created such a heavy burden that you've put on men's backs that they can't possibly carry out. You can't even do it yourselves. And he came to release us from that. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me and you will have rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my, my, my way is easy and my burden is light. So we're no longer under the law. We're now standing upon the foundation that it laid. And it is still really, really good. And it is good for us when we do the things, when we take the Old Testament morality and the Old Testament ethics and we incorporate those into our lives. And much of the New Testament affirms that. So I want to close. And yes, I am going to close this message at some point. As I have apologized, this really should have probably been two messages but it just didn't work out that way. So you get some bonus round today. We're going to finish with Matthew 7. If you know your Bible, you know Matthew 7 is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is when Jesus brings it all together, and he uses one of my favorite words in the whole Bible to do it. And if you've been around for a while, you know what I'm talking about. It's the word therefore. It's the first word in verse 24, and the therefore is there to make application of the whole Sermon on the Mount. So don't miss this, because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' quintessential message, and he's about to make application 
for his quintessential message. We should pay attention to this. We should see what he has to say. Verse 24 of Matthew chapter 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So Jesus is saying that his teaching, his life, his death, and his resurrection are the rock. He is the rock. We build our lives on him. What did John say about Jesus in the first few verses of the Gospel of John? He said that he is the Word made flesh. He is the Word of God. He is the Old Testament walking around on earth. It's pretty cool. He is the Word made flesh. And he's saying that he is the rock upon which we build our lives. And to illustrate this a little bit, I've got a table and I've got some fake sand. I was going to use real sand, but real sand makes a mess, and we got two services. If we only had one service, I might have made a mess, but I didn't think we could clean the mess in between services, so I found some fake sand. This is sand, okay? Willing suspension of disbelief right here. This is sand, and Jesus is saying, don't build on sand. And I want to show you what happens if you build on sand. This is really actually pretty light. Um, You were right, Ben. That would be funny. Um, So when we build on sand, one block is not that big a deal. Like, it's going to be okay. But if we start building on this and we seek to, to get things to line up, maybe we'll be all right there. Okay, and then we kind of interlock these, and they don't really lock that well because we're building on sand, right? And what happens if something moves the sand? Well, now we got a real problem, even if we smooth it out. Like, have you ever seen a toddler get in trouble and they start trying to smooth out the mess that they made? That's kind of what we do when we just try to smooth out the sand because a storm's going to come, and the storm is going to blow the sand away. And so Jesus says that we want to build on the rock. And in order to build on the rock, you got to get rid of the sand, And that ain't easy sometimes. Sometimes we really like the sand. And I'm not talking about the beach. I know you're thinking about vacation. I'm not talking about the beach. I'm talking about anything that comes between you and Jesus. The culture throws sand at us all the time. It's almost impossible to get through high school without having a whole lot of sand between you and Jesus. That's why children's ministry is so important. That's why you need to serve there. And that's why youth ministry is so important. That's why you need to serve there and send your kids to Kidsway and to LSM because it helps keep the sand away. It helps sweep the sand away. And that's why you need to read the Bible as a family every night and talk about it and make sure that the dots are connecting for your kids so you get down to bedrock. Oh, that's pretty solid. That's really good. And there's no sand there, so I don't have to worry about a storm coming through and blowing that away. And oh, man, that lines up really nice. And and Scripture says some other really interesting things about Jesus. It says Jesus is the cornerstone. It says it's the cornerstone. If you've got a good cornerstone, now all your all your lines are going to be plumb. Everything's going to be true. And you can build that sucker and you can build up and you can build out. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to build our lives up on God's word to be, 
to be seen in the world around us, to point people to Jesus and to be secure. And when the storms come, they don't rattle us. When unemployment comes, it doesn't rattle us. When COVID comes, it doesn't rattle us. We're good. We're built on the rock. We're built on the cornerstone of Jesus. In fact, it says one more thing about Jesus that I want you to chew on. It says he's also the capstone. So when this thing, this, this house gets built, this mansion that Jesus wants your life to be, that everybody can see, that he lives in, that points everybody to God, he puts the capstone on top of it. And it's founded on him. He's the cornerstone. He's the capstone. It begins and ends with him. That's why he said, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the foundation, the cornerstone, the capstone. It all points to him. He is the word made flesh. He is the incarnate word of God. A life built on him will not fall. It will not fall. It will stand. It will stand for eternity. And so our bottom line, There is no firmer foundation than the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. There is no firmer foundation for our lives, for our families, for our churches, for our communities, for our culture, for our world than the Word of God. Build your life on Him. Build your life on Him and Him alone. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for right standing with God, which comes through a life built on Him, built on His Word. If you're not doing at least 15 minutes a day of Scripture and response, engagement with that, I beseech you by the mercies of God to start that habit now and extend it for the rest of your life. And if you're doing that, take the next step. Take the next step. Share it with somebody. Share it with somebody that's not reading the Bible. They're reading you. Connect the dots for them. Help them to see that they need to build their lives on the Word. That's a whole other sermon. And I've already preached one and it went long, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have spent together in your word. Thank you for being that firm foundation. Thank you for the invitation to build our lives on you, Lord. I would imagine in a room this size, an audience this size, an online audience, there's a whole continuum. There are people that have diligently been sweeping that sand away for a lifetime. And they're building their lives on the rock. And it's solid. May they continue and may they find people who need their help. May they share what they have learned with them. May they point people to you. May they bring glory and honor to you in every single thing that they do. And for those of us that have some sand and have a little bit of a shaky foundation, Send us your spirit and help us to get down to bedrock, to build our lives on you and you alone. And Lord, if there's one listening, if there's one in the room today that would say, there is so much sand between me and Jesus, I don't even know where to start. May they start by crying out for help. May they start with a humble confession that they have sinned and fallen short of your glory. May they surrender their lives to you. May they ask you to come in and to lead them and to show them. May you send people to help them. And may we all move forward in faith. May we all move closer to you. May we all share your goodness with somebody in the days and weeks ahead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.